Section 29, A Class Book of Old Testament History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Classic Book of Old Testament History, Book 5, Chapter 3, Conquest of the East of Jordan, Balaam and Balak, by George Frederick McClear. The country north of the present encampment of the Israelites from the Arnon to the Jabbok was at this time possessed by the Amorites. We have already met with this tribe on the western side of the Jordan. Tempted by the rich pasture lands east of this river, a colony of them appears to have crossed, and having driven the Moabites with great slaughter and the loss of many captives from the country south of the Jabbok, to have made the wide chasm of the Aaron henceforth the boundary between them. The Amorite king at this time was Sihon, and his capital was Heshbon, twenty miles east of the Jordan, on the parallel of the northern end of the Dead Sea. Thither the Israelitish leaders sent messengers requesting a peaceful passage through his territory, and promising the same respect for his land and possessions which had already been proposed to the Edomites. But their request was rudely rejected. Sihon would not allow them even to pass through his borders, but assembled his forces and prepared for battle. The Israelites did not decline the engagement, which took place at Jahaz, probably a short distance south of Hezbon, and resulted in the total defeat of the Amorites. Sihon himself, his sons, and all his people were smitten with the sword. His walled towns Ar and Heshbon, Nophah and Medeba, were captured, and his numerous flocks and herds fell into the hands of the victors, who thus became masters of the entire country between the Arnon and the Jabbok. Apparently about the same time that Sihon had expelled the Moabites from the rich territory south of the Jabbok, Another Amorite chief seized the country extending from that river to the foot of Hermon, and known as the land of Bashan. His name was Og, one of the last of the giant race of Rephaim. He ruled over sixty cities, and his stronghold was a remarkable oval district, about twenty-two miles from north to south by fourteen from west to east, called by the Hebrews Argob, or the Stony, afterwards by the Greeks Traconitis and now Leha. This extraordinary region has been described as an ocean of basaltic rocks and boulders, tossed about in the wildest confusion, and intermingled with fissures and crevices in every direction, and yet in spite of its ungainly and forbidding features thickly studded even now with deserted cities and villages, in all of which the dwellings are solidly built and of remote antiquity. On a rocky promontory southwest of this marvelous region, without water, without access, save over rocks and through defiles almost impracticable, was the city of Edri, strength. Here, as if in the Thermopylae of his kingdom, the giant king of Bashan and all his people resolved to encounter the advancing hosts of the Israelites, led, it seems probable, by two eminent chiefs of the tribe of Manasseh, Jer and Noba. Like the Amorite chief of Hezbon, Og could not withstand the valor of the Israelites. He was utterly rooted, and his threescore cities fenced with high walls, gates, and bars, besides unwalled towns, a great many, fell into their hands. A trophy of this victory, long preserved by the children of Ammon in the city of Rabbah. 
was a huge iron bedstead of the Amorite king, nine cubits long by four wide, and long afterwards the subjugation of Sihon king of the Amorites and Og the king of Bashan, great kings, famous kings, mighty kings, was deemed worthy of being ranked with the tokens and wonders wrought in the land of Egypt and the overthrow of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. After these two decisive engagements, which made them masters of the entire country east of the Jordan, from the wide chasm of the Arnon to the foot of the snow-capped Hermon, the Israelites encamped in the plains of Shittim, or the meadow of the Acacias, amidst the long belt of Acacia groves, which, on its eastern as well as its western side, lined the upper terraces of the Jordan over against Jericho. South of the Arnon was the little corner of territory occupied by Moab, who viewed with no little alarm the successes of the Israelites against such mighty kings as Sihon and Og. This people, said Balak, the king of Moab, to the elders of Midian, lick up all that are round about us, as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. Sensible of the uselessness of attacking a nation so manifestly under the protection of an invisible power, the two confederate tribes resolved before falling upon them to place them under an awful curse, which might have the effect of paralyzing their arms. At this time, no man was supposed to have greater power in this way than a famous prophet named Balaam, the son of Beor. He lived far away from the present encampment of the Israelites at Pethor, beyond the Euphrates, in Aram, among the mountains of the east, but his fame had spread across the Assyrian desert, even to the shores of the Dead Sea. His gifts he exercised as a prophet of the same God, who had wrought so many miracles in behalf of the Israelites. If, therefore, he could be persuaded to lay upon them his powerful ban, their further success the Moabites thought might be checked, and the children of Lot might not only recover the land of which they had been deprived by the Amorites, but possibly add to them the fertile territory the Israelites had so lately won from Sion and Og. Accordingly, elders of both Moab and Midian, with the rewards of divination in their hands, were dispatched eastward across the Assyrian desert to entreat the aid of the powerful prophet. On reaching their destination and announcing the purport of their errand, Balaam, uncertain of the lawfulness of complying with it, requested them to lodge there that night while he ascertained the will of Jehovah. The answer he obtained was unfavorable. Thou shalt not go with them, said God. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. On the morrow, therefore, he sent the messengers away, bidding them announce to their master that Jehovah forbade his accompanying them. Undeterred by this failure, and possibly informed by his messengers that the prophet himself did not seem unwilling to come, the king of Moab sent a second embassy consisting of princes more and more honorable than the last, to inform him that he would advance him to very great honor, and do whatever he commanded, if only he would come. Again, therefore, the toilsome Syrian desert was traversed, and the messengers preferred their request. But again they seemed to have come in vain. If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, said the prophet, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord to do less or more. But instead of at once sending the messengers away, he bade them lodge with him that night, while he consulted the Lord a second time. On this occasion the word of the Lord came to him, and bade him go, 
but authorized him to speak nothing more and nothing less than the very words that should be put into his mouth balaam accordingly set out on his journey but he was not to accomplish it without receiving another and more terrible warning against it and its object as he rode upon his ass the angel of the lord stood in the way with his sword drawn in his hand as if in derision of his claims to be a powerful seer the beast alone discerned the celestial adversary and started aside out of the way into a field on this balaam smote it and turned it into a path running through some vineyards but again the angel confronted the willful prophet and the frightened ass in its efforts to avoid him crushed his foot against the wall therefore balaam struck it a second time and now as if in still deeper derision of one who claimed to be able to reveal to kings and princes the will of the invisible the dumb beast in the accents of a man forbade the madness of life of the prophet on this balaam's eyes were at length opened and as he bowed himself down before the angel he was sternly rebuked for his willfulness and proposed to turn back rather than displease the lord but since his mind was wholly bent on that course he was a second time bidden to proceed but a second time also warned against uttering any other words than those which a divine power should put into his mouth the journey was now resumed and at length the watchmen of balak announced to their master that the mighty prophet was approaching therefore balak went forth to meet him and after a brief rebuke of his delay conducted his visitor to kerjath hozoth the town of streets a place in the furthest borders of his kingdom and possibly of sacred or oracular reputation where he entertained him at a great feast on the next day he conducted him to the high places dedicated to baal that rose above the encampment of the israelites whence he might gain a view of the utmost part of the people he had desired him to curse there by the prophet's direction the king erected seven altars and on each they offered together a bullock and a ram and while balak with his attendant princes stood by his burnt offering balaam went forth to a high place to learn the divine will and god met balaam and put a word in his mouth and returning to the expectant king he declared that it was impossible for him to curse jacob and defy israel that he could not curse him whom god had not cursed or defy him whom jehovah had not defied on hearing this response so entirely opposite to what he had expected balak was highly incensed but thinking a change of view might have a different influence on the prophet's spirit he brought him to zophim a cultivated field of the watchman high up on the range of pisgah again the altars were built and the victims slain again the king stood by his burnt sacrifice and again balaam went forth to meet the lord but still the answer was unfavorable the steam of sacrifice could not bend the will of jehovah he was not a man that he should lie or repent of his fixed purpose what he had said he would do what he had spoken he would perform in jacob he had not beheld iniquity neither had he seen perverseness in israel he had brought them out of egypt and neither augury nor divination could prevail against them more incensed than before the king of moab burst forth into bitter complaints against the prophet 
and though the latter reminded him that he could speak nothing but the word of Jehovah, yet he determined from one more point to show him the people, that peradventure he might thence effect the potent curse. He led him up, therefore, to a peak, where stood the sanctuary of Peor, looking toward Jeshimon, or the waste, probably the dreary barren waste of the hills lying immediately on the east of the Dead Sea. There the seven alders were for the third time built, and the victims for the third time slain. But Balaam was now convinced that Jehovah was pleased only to bless the people, without resorting, therefore, any more to useless divinations. He lifted up his eyes and looked down upon the tribes encamped in the acacia groves below him, with their goodly tents spread out like the valleys or watercourses of the mountains, like the hanging gardens beside his own great river Euphrates, as line aloes which the Lord had planted, as cedar trees beside the waters. And as he stood with tranced yet open gaze, he saw the vision of the Almighty, and in outline dim and vast beheld the future of the desert-wearied tribes that lay encamped before him in sight of Canaan. He beheld them pouring water from their buckets, their seed in many waters, their king higher than any Amalekite Agag ruling in the Arabian wilderness south of where he stood. He knew that God had brought them forth out of Egypt, and that their strength was like that of the unicorn. He foresaw them couched as a lion, and lying down as a great lion, eating up the nations their enemies, breaking their bones, and piercing them through with the arrows of their archers. Blessed was he that blessed them, and cursed was he that cursed them. Balak's vexation was now increased tenfold. Smiting his hands together, he upbraided the prophet for his deceit, and in place of advancing him, as he had intended, to high honor, bade him flee for his life to his native land. Nor was the other loath to go. But before he went, for he felt himself still moved by the prophetic spirit, he would advertise the king of what this mysterious people would do to his people in the latter days. Again, therefore, he took up his parable, and saw, but not now, he beheld but not nigh a star, bright as any that spangled the eastern sky, coming out of Jacob, and a scepter rising out of Israel, smiting through the princess of Moab and destroying all their wild warriors, the sons of Tumult. One by one he saw the giant forms of empires on their way to ruin, Edom and Seir becoming a possession for their enemies, Amalek, then the first of the nations, in his latter and perishing forever, the Kenites, then strong in their dwelling place, and putting their nest in the neighboring rocks of Engedi, wasted and made a prey, nay, even Israel carried away captive by Ashur. And yet once more he saw woe in store even for Ashur, even for his own native land. Far in the distant future he saw ships coming from Chittim, the island of Cyprus, to afflict Ashur and to afflict Eber, till the proud kingdoms of the eastern world, and he who should afflict them perished forever. And then the vision closed. The true prophetic light died away, and the king of Moab, baffled and disappointed, returned to his people. This is the end of section 29, book 5, chapter 3.
by Dave Courier.